All right, everybody. So we have Danny Lennon with us today. He's on the other side of the podcasting screen, and he has a master's degree in nutritional sciences. And for today, we're going to be donating to the Pieta House. So Danny, can you just briefly explain why we chose that? Uh, sure. So the Pieta House is a, a charity based here in Ireland, and they do a lot of work in the area of uh, suicide and self-harm. So uh, trying to prevent that as much as possible and having support networks in place uh, for people affected by that. So they do pretty good work. And uh, so, yeah, that's why I chose them. Awesome. Thanks for that. And uh, a lot of people know you as the host of the Sigma Nutrition Podcast, uh, but you actually have a pretty big martial arts background in helping martial artists. So how did that start for you? And then how did it transition more into helping some powerlifters? Uh, yeah, so a kind of a few combinations of things. So as I started out with my own nutrition coaching and consultancy, worked with a quite a broad general range of people, uh, people who are just trying to improve their health, improve their body composition, a lot of the, the, the main general population clientele you'd work with. Uh, but my own interest was in various different sports and I played a ton of different things. Um, growing up, it was always things like soccer and a, a sport in, here in Ireland, Gaelic football. And then when I went to uh, university for the first time, uh, started getting more into MMA and some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so started training com and competing in jiu-jitsu myself. And uh, then as I was coaching people nutrition, made some connections in the fitness industry. Uh, and a one of the kind of big kind of breakthrough moments was probably a, a friend of mine who's a strength and conditioning coach worked with some pretty uh, high-level uh, athletes in Muay Thai and, and MMA. And so needed someone to start working uh, with them on their diet and weight cuts and started doing that. And a few of them were quite well known. And from there, my work kind of spread by word of mouth from some of those guys and just started to pick up more and more of these uh, athletes in this very specific area. Uh, and then through that, I could kind of see how there was a lot of misconceptions around what nutrition can do for them, uh, particularly some of the strategies I used to make weight. And so I just got more and more involved with trying to give them a, a better direction. And so ended up writing a bit more about it then. I uh, wrote a bit of a book about combat sport nutrition and, and weight cuts. Started talking a bit more about on, on the podcast. And so it kind of evolved from there of just getting involved with these athletes. Thought they were a cool population to work with. And um, yeah, kind of escalated from there. And then obviously where a lot of the kind of powerlifting stuff came in, that was again kind of bore out my own personal interest, I guess, first and foremost. Uh, so I started competing a few years back in powerlifting. Um, it's probably been my main sport competitively for the past few years. And through that and getting to know people, and in addition to those people finding out that I've worked with people making weight and doing weight cuts, that's obviously a huge part of any weight class-based sport like powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting. So it was kind of a very natural progression for some of those athletes to, to get in touch and started working with us. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of been a combination of being involved in those fields just as a, an athlete and a fan, as well as having connections within the S&C side of things and just getting to work with some of these athletes um, firsthand. And then from there, it kind of evolves and grows. And if you do a good enough job, people end up uh, telling other people about it. So that's how it's awesome. kind of worked out. Nice. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about um, what the fighters and everything thought about nutrition, because... Uh, back when I was wrestling, uh, I was fortunate enough to not have to cut weight, uh, but a lot of people obviously do cut weight for wrestling. And just some of the approaches that you hear were just ridiculous. I mean, I know somebody who said, like, no steak during the season for, for whatever reason. Um, right. 
you know, just ridiculous diets. And even now, it seems like, um, you know, Conor McGregor's coach was on Joe Rogan recently, and he had, like, the nutrition guy with him. And I don't know your thoughts on it, but a lot of the stuff he was saying, I, I don't know if you even heard it, but it, it was just, <laughs> you know, 10 years behind at least, maybe more, and, and just some of the stuff. I don't know. Have you noticed that um, the fighting nutrition seems to be behind a lot of the evidence base now, even now? Yes. So I, I think uh, I, I try to stay away from like publicly naming and shaming people, but like, yeah, not yeah. that I have a problem with it, but I just generally don't do that. I know other people can. Um, but if people ask me about specific things that are said, so for example, that particular interview, I think it's pretty clear to most people who have a, a background in even just basic human physiology, a lot of the things that were said were just incorrect. <laughs> yeah. And um, unfortunately, what happens with I think this is probably true across uh, many sports, even at an elite level. People have this misconception that if someone is an S&C coach or is a nutritionist working with a certain athlete or a certain sports team, well, they must know what they're doing, right? Right. And they don't probably give the uh, due credit to luck that happens a lot of the times of somehow people get into positions based on other things than their actual competency um, or their understanding of certain science. And I think particularly with uh, fight sport nutrition, a lot of the practices people typically did were based on cultural things. So you see this a lot, even when training those types of athletes, you see a big pet peeve for a lot of the strength and conditioning coaches is they have an athlete who has been really successful but maybe did a lot of training out in Thailand. And one of their things is that we'll go for a 10-mile run in the morning and we'll out eating, we'll come back and then we'll do some pad work. It's like if you were ideally designing a, a program to get the maximal benefit from an athletic capacity, you probably wouldn't structure it that way. Right. But it's hard to get people to change because again, that's a very kind of cultural thing. Um, you have the same, see the same thing in boxing gyms. They have things that are done a very specific way. Uh, you have a lot of these athletes who their coach had a very specific method for how he made weight. And then he got all his fighters to do it that way because that's the way he was taught to do it by his coach. And they were both great fighters. And it's very difficult to break that cycle for some of these people. So I think the cultural aspect is difficult. And then uh, at a broader level, um, I just think it's easy for certain people to sound like they know what they're doing and to sound smart and to tell people what they want to hear. And so then people think, well, oh, this nutrition guy is great. He's helping people make weight. He says I can... He can make me cut 30 pounds and no problem. And, um, it's hard for people to vet those people for what they're actually saying. Uh, it's, it's because people can make it sound like what they're saying is logical or sounds right. smart or they're using sciencey words. Uh, but as you said, probably a lot of it is not actually what we would class as evidence-based practice, I guess. Yeah, I think if somebody has just a little bit more knowledge than somebody else it's easy to make it seem like you know everything just by like you said maybe using words that they're not familiar with or something like that absolutely yeah for sure yeah so how does your uh, method for dieting or just specifically cutting weight for fighters vary compared to uh let's say powerlifters so there's there's a few things so if we're talking about specifically making weight for the competition uh there's two elements that we probably look at one is the time frame between the weigh-in and the actual competition so that can obviously vary quite a lot even within the same sport so with our pro mma guys and pro boxers they typically have probably 30 hours between weigh-in and fight they'll weigh in on a friday afternoon and not fight until saturday night 
so that's a considerable amount of time that they can rehydrate, they can get some carbohydrates back in to refill glycogen and so on. So a lot of the things we would do to deplete them in order for their weight to come down, uh, we can restore that pretty effectively in a 30-hour time span. If it's something like uh, maybe an amateur boxing tournament or it's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament where they might have an hour or less, um, or it's a, let's see, an IPF powerlifting meet where they have two hours, again, you have massively shrunk the time frame you can or rehydrate and refuel someone. And so therefore, the amount of water loss and, and overall restriction you can do in the first place is limited if you want to get good performance. Uh, the second thing is probably dependent on uh, the energy systems used in that sport. So let's say even if we match two conditions where the, the time frame between the weigh-in and the competition is the same. Uh, we have a power lifter and let's say an amateur boxer and they have two hours between a weigh-in and the start of a, a competition. Uh, in order to maximally perform, we know that for that MMA fighter or if it's a boxer, for example, that they are going to do best if we have full stores of glycogen. Uh, the, the sport is very glycolytically demanding, so it's going to use a lot of carbohydrate, uh, and they're going to be working at an intensity that's going to demand that. And so if we go into that competition with their glycogen store depleted, that's not going to be a good thing. And so if we are thinking what strategies can we use to help them cut weight, we probably wouldn't put them on a super low-carb diet and completely deplete all their glycogen because we don't have enough time in those two hours to refill it. However, if we have a power lifter and they, they need to drop a considerable amount of weight, then obviously having full glycogen would still be better than having depleted glycogen, but we can still go lower on carbohydrates, let's say, that in that final week before they weigh in, because even if they don't fully restore glycogen as much as possible, it shouldn't really bleed over into any major performance detriment in most cases. Um, now, again, is it optimal? No, but the kind of the trade-off might be worth it if they're able to make weight in the lower weight class and for doing a, a one rep max it's not going to be really demanding on, on glycogen at all so there's there's that two elements there's one is the time frame and then second is the the energy systems involved would dictate the actual plan we're going to take uh, for number one how much weight this athlete should cut and then second what methods we're going to use to try and make that weight gotcha okay um and i know you you know, we have a lot of information um, free and stuff that people can purchase on dropping weight. So maybe you don't want to give away like little secrets. <laughs> but do you have or do you notice like big mistakes that people make going into it? I mean, there's like the classic ones of people just, you know, completely dehydrating themselves. Um, but maybe something that's a little less obvious that you see a lot of athletes do that you, you try to correct pretty early on. Uh, sure. So first is. We, we could take a long-term view of first for people who are planning to cut weight for a competition is just getting them to think through should you be actually cutting weight a lot of people think it's a good thing to do because they see others doing it um and there's this kind of concept that that the more weight i can cut or the the lower weight class i can get into the more competitive i'm going to be and that's not always the case but people have this in their mind that oh if i can lift this total at this weight class, if I was just able to go down one, I'd be way more competitive. I could be winning that weight class. Not realizing that, well, if you're going to go down to a weight class that's nine kilos below where you are now, you're not going to be lifting where you're at, right? So it's, it's not that same comparison. Uh, and similarly, this is the same thing if you look at boxing or MMA. A lot of times it can be a, a good idea. If someone's able to make weight effectively for a lower weight class, they're going to be essentially bigger for that weight class, the whole idea of making weight. 
But for some people, they actually perform better at a higher weight class. And we've seen quite a number of examples in a, even an elite level over the years that have done this, either guys that don't cut much weight or people who have gone up a weight class and performed even better. And so first I would get people to really think through their assumption that going down to a lower weight class is necessarily going to be better. Um, the second is looking at a long-term view of, okay, do you have a lot of body fat that you can slowly diet down to make that the actual cutting weight process in that final week much less? Um, I think that ties into the methods that people use to use what, lose weight in that final week often get centered around how much they can dehydrate themselves. And so probably one of the big pieces that they're missing or at least underestimating is other strategies that can allow you to modify your weight with before you have to resort to some of the water loss dehydration stuff. So for example, one that we use with all our athletes is a low residue diet or a low fiber diet for about two to three days. And simply doing that for the two to three days before you weigh in will have zero impact on your performance. It, it won't decrease at all. All you're doing is going on a lower fiber intake for a few days, but you lose some of the residue that's in your gastrointestinal tract. So you're actually losing mass that's just sitting there in your intestine just from going on this low fiber diet. And up to that, depending on what someone's habitual fiber intake can be, that could be as much as 1% of their body weight they could drop just through that method. Now, if they can drop that 1% of their body weight just by that low fiber intervention for a few days, that's saving them that 1% of body weight that they would otherwise have to sweat out and dehydrate themselves by. So it, it's being aware of other strategies like that. Uh, then we could look at like carbohydrate restriction um, and so on, as opposed to just thinking it's about uh, eating as little as possible and dehydrating myself as much as possible. So that tends to be where people go wrong. They either try and cut too much weight, they don't take a long-term view of cutting weight, or they don't use the right strategies. And, and I'm happy to talk about any specific parts of any of those if you want. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, I like the low residue option, um, especially like you said, for like a short-term approach, just because it doesn't create any, it doesn't necessarily have to create a deficit. So it's not necessarily going to impair performance in any way. Um, and, and it's pretty easy to do. You know, you're just not eating as high fiber foods. Um, I actually had to do that. <laughs> so not for anything fighting related, but when you get a insurance like disability insurance, they look at your weight. And so technically I'm overweight, you know, just because of the muscle mass. And so for a couple of days I got from like a 25.1 BMI down to a 24.8 BMI just by going with some lower volume foods. Essentially. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I've had some pretty crazy messages online from people who have had to cut weight for non-sporting reasons that can mm -hmm. get pretty crazy uh, one guy from uh he's living in an asian country i won't give too many of the details but essentially <laughs> to avoid mandatory military service he oh, wow. worked out if he could diet down and then cut weight to a certain point it would put his bmi so low that he would be exempt from it on medical terms oh, and wow. to him he thought it was worth it yeah so I was like, uh, I can't really give you too much advice here, man, but uh, best of luck with it. So, <laughs> wow, yeah, people wow. are trying these strategies for all sorts of reasons, I guess. That's, that's interesting. So how did mm -hmm. this all you know, culminate into, because like I said before, I think a lot of people know you from the podcast. Um, and oftentimes, I think we don't necessarily know the backgrounds of the people doing podcasts. We just see them as interviewing other people. So obviously, you, you have this significant background yourself. But how did that eventually culminate into deciding to do this podcast that now I think is going on like 250 episodes? 
Yeah, so yeah, we're we're past 250 episodes. It's been there since the start of 2014. Um, so like we were saying before we start recording, got in that early wave before podcasting was a big thing at all. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, where it kind of first started when I first, um, when I was doing my, my master's in nutrition during that time, I used to write on this old blog that I had and just start doing some articles. And then towards the tail end of that, decided I was going to have this, uh, my company Sigma Nutrition. I was going to have the new website and I need to start putting out content. Um, and not really knowing what I was doing to a certain degree. It was like, okay, I just need to be able to put my ideas out somewhere. And so I thought, yeah, I'll write some articles. I might do some YouTube videos. And then the podcasting thing was just because I personally listened to a few different podcasts at the time. Um, and back then, they, they weren't anywhere near as big as they are now. And, mm-hmm. as, but they were around, and there were some that I enjoyed listening to. And I was like, I like them. Maybe I'll, I can try this thing. And uh, so just started doing it. And pretty soon afterwards, I kind of realized two things. One is that the podcast was picking up more traction than other forms of media for me. Uh, people were really responding well to it. Uh, numbers started to steadily climb uh, pretty quickly. And it was the, f- the second thing was it was the form of media that was I was enjoying most. I was really enjoying doing it. I enjoyed having these longer form conversations with people and just the access it was giving me people too. Um, and so I think it was the, the perfect intersection of, uh, on one side, I enjoy doing it, which is what you need if you're going to continue doing it for a long period of time. But second, I just think it complemented my particular skill set. Um, so there's lots of things I'm terrible at. Uh, there's a few small things that, that I think I'm pretty okay at. And I think some of them were useful for something like a podcast uh, and I think I try and put a lot of effort into that of how I structure things, how I think through questioning, uh, the direction I want to take things, um, being able to listen to what the person is saying and be able to ask good follow-up questions as opposed to overly structuring things. All these little things that I've worked out over the years um, and put effort into, but at the same time I think it just sat well with what I thought was a skill set that I had. And so that's why the the podcast started. And from there, it was just, I'm going to keep doing this. And uh, thankfully, like I said, it got some good feedback early on. Numbers started to climb. And then within that, probably around the six to maybe nine month mark, there was kind of an inflection point where it really started to to take off. Um, And then from there, it was just continue that momentum of, okay, how can I keep trying to make things better? And how can I try and get more listeners this month than I was last month. And I just keep mm-hmm. with that, this, this steady organic uh, growth. And uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. And I, I think the, going back to like what you said, the, we can, you can get known for specific things. So um, for example, being involved with combat sport athletes or, or weight cuts, whereas I really love that stuff, but it's like 1% of the things that I find fascinating and interesting around human health. Um, and so there's things that I spend a huge ton of time of learning about and reading about and really digging into myself that I I even don't talk too much about on uh, the podcast because uh, I I don't uh, see myself as having a sufficient level of expertise just yet. Uh, But there's all these different areas that I really enjoy learning about. And so the podcast gives me access to that as people can probably see if they look through the, the topics that come up on the podcast. There is no one central theme. It's not a podcast for combat sport nutrition. It's not just clinical nutrition. It's not just 
bodybuilding. Like there's everything that just as my interest bounces around the place, that's where it goes. And uh, maybe from a business perspective, some marketers might tell me that's not a good idea. But uh, mm-hmm. for me, that's just my, my, where my curiosity leads. And it allows me just to jump into topics that I'm, I'm fascinated by. And like I said, there's there's so many when it comes to health and uh, I'm fascinated by medicine, for example. But like I said, I don't talk too much about it because I'm not a medical doctor and so on. Uh, but being able to talk to other people about some of these things is, is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, obviously I don't have nearly as many podcasts done at this point as you do. Um, but just in thinking of the topics, I mean, right now, uh, you know, I, I have a decent background in exercise science and nutrition. Um, but still being able to talk to like true experts who maybe have gone through a PhD on it, you just realize that unless you've gone through that level of schooling and that much experience, it's almost impossible to really call yourself an expert on it and getting able to talk to different people in different areas like that. Um, like one guy I was going to have on, he's an expert in like the placebo effect. And, you know, we all know about it, but I mean, this guy has like years and years of research on it. And it, it is cool to be able to talk to all these different people who, things you have a little bit of interest in and they can just expand so much broadly. And, and even if it, you know, like you said, you might get a little bit less of a focus on one topic. Um, so from a marketing standpoint, maybe it's not ideal, but from the person doing it, from our standpoint, um, it is really cool to be able to talk to so many different experts. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think on one side you have just learning stuff from obviously these different experts in different areas, but also from a, um, it's a good reality check that stuff that you even think you have a good grasp on and you talk yeah. about someone who's a very narrow niche expert in this area and you just see like there's just levels <laughs> to this stuff right like you say yeah. we, you conceptually understand the placebo you've probably seen a ton of stuff read a lot about it and then you have someone who's like life's work is in that kind of topic and like mm-hmm. there's just a whole new level of understanding and you can pretty much have that about um, any specific area uh, yeah. and so I, I tell people this a lot it's these people to be skeptical of is this person who's this nutrition expert that has the answer to every question because they just can't like it's impossible like uh, I tell people about the professor who I did my master's research under uh, he's a guy called uh, professor Kevin Cashman one of the top guys in the world when it comes to vitamin D research Um, and his level of understanding is just so incredible but in this very specific narrow area that you can you would never be able to get close to it unless you spent your whole life going just mm-hmm. on vitamin D or vitamin D for yeah. uh, North American <laughs> listeners, uh, and so and that applies to every topic. So you can either go that very specific route, or what I've kind of do is be more of a, a broad generalist and and try and learn as much as I can, uh, and maybe shortcut shortcut that process by talking to these types of people. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and a good analogy, I think it's going back to fighting. You know, how many people do we know who are maybe undefeated wrestlers in high school and then they go to states and they, they get stomped or, you know, undefeated and amateur, they go into the octagon and they, they get crushed because somebody who's like a true expert in it, um, you know, in everything in life, I think there's just these these levels and those people at the top, it's, it's kind of hard to touch them unless you've spent an entire life dedicated to it. Right, yeah. I, I mean, the MMA analogy is a really good one because there's this such this diverse set of, of skills that if you were to take any one element of that, there, there's going to be no MMA fighter on the planet that is going to be better than someone who specifically focuses on that, right? So right. you could take 
you take the be- best wrestler in the UFC, they're not going to be, they're not going to out wrestle an Olympic champion, right? You take the best boxer, they're not going to outbox a world champion. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you'd have, you'd have people at a uh, much lower level of, of boxing or wrestling that in that pure art would dominate most of the elite level athletes. So it's, it's that thing that you either can spread yourself a bit thinner and, and get pretty good at most stuff, or you can be like this narrow focus where you're kind of superstar kind of thing. Right, right. So do you have, a, I mean, it's hard with 250 plus interviews, but do you have a favorite handful that really like stick out to you? Or is it just kind of, it's, I mean, it's been so much, it might be hard to kind of pinpoint that. Yeah, I, I find it hard to really pin down because I'll often forget some. Or like I said, my interests tend to kind of go in this phasic structure across the year of different areas mm-hmm. that I'm really into. And right, right. so at certain points, I'm fascinated by this certain area and that's all I want to hear about. And other times it'd be something else. Um, so th- I don't know if th- there's obviously some that I think are, did, people responded to really well. And there's others that I really in- enjoy doing. But in, in terms of uh, ones that I would say is the best, I, I find it hard to pick specific ones sure. out. Um, well, how about honest, um, yeah. maybe a better question would be, you know, looking at all the ones that you've done and some that you've been really interested in. What are some like the biggest changes in mindset you've had? Maybe going into the interview, you thought one way, and by the end, you know, kind of like a revelation of like, you know, this was something I had not heard of, or maybe completely changed your mind on. Any examples of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there, there's plenty. So I think uh, for me, one of the the cool ones that's a probably a light bulb moment that was reported by a lot of people who listened to it as well uh, in episode. 200 of my podcast i did a a panel discussion on saturated fat and so this is a topic that again if someone is just coming into nutrition would think is a pretty black and white topic right that Mm -hmm. most people think yeah you don't eat too much saturated fat try and limit those uh or and so on um then you start to hear opposing opinions oh don't worry about you can eat as much as you want and then these like two opposing extremes uh but through that discussion i had uh four people from various different backgrounds uh, discussing some of the topics and issues related to literature in that area and you just see how uh, nuanced and context specific a lot of this stuff can be and I think rather than give a, a big take home I think that that in itself was the take home right that this yeah. stuff is nuanced and it I think that needs to dawn on a lot of people that when it comes to any conversation around nutrition there's very rarely an absolutist answer we can give um, and even beyond that, what I think is the one thing I've tried to push more and more to people is that talking about n- nutrition recommendations at a, let's say, a population level for a large group of people is one specific thing that is almost completely distinct from giving nutrition recommendations to one single person. Mm-hmm. And so if you are trying to critique someone who is in charge of public health and they're trying to put out public health messaging, and then you're saying, well, this doesn't apply to this specific person. It's like, yeah, we can't do that. Like it, it's a general recommendation for as much of that bell curve as we can get for a reason. And it, it's very hard to give stuff that's going to work for everyone or maybe even most people. And so it's a maybe a, a general starting point as messaging, but then for on an individual level, there's almost uh, almost no universal rules really when it comes to nutrition a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Even stuff that you would think is a, an exceptionally... Uh, like uh, just something non-controversial that people say of like, well, a high fiber diet is 
is a good. It's good for health, right? Seems pretty good for most people, but you can always find an exception. You can find people who have uh, IBS or certain uh, gut issues that, for at least for a certain period of time, would benefit greatly from low fiber uh, intake. Right. Um, so, and you can look at all these different contexts. We talk about sugar, anything else. So, I think that particular episode is a good illustration of that to me because it's something that can seem like a, a black and white topic, like is saturated fat good or bad? And then we spend like these two hours talking about all these shades of gray. So, right. Uh, that for me is a, is a particularly useful one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Um, and it delving a little bit more into the nutrition. You had made an Instagram post yesterday that I think was just the uh, the start of a topic you want to talk about. And when I eventually post this, it'll it'll be in a couple of weeks, so I'm sure the other post of yours will be up by then. Um, but you talked a little bit about how the most nutritious choice isn't always the healthiest choice, um, and I, I very much agreed with the point you were making there. So could you, uh, if you don't mind, explain a little bit what you meant there? Uh, yeah, so uh, I kind of made that statement, and I think I've made it a few times in maybe other uh, articles or, or places I've talked before about how the the most nutritious decision that you can make at a certain time may not be the most healthful. And as I put in that post, that may sound like an oxymoron, but as you delve into it, what I mean by that is if you base your decisions on food purely on the nutritive content of them, then we would be just processing this like an AI robot. Like, okay, what is the nutrient profile of all, of all these specific foods? What is the exact amount? And I'm going to consume these at like ideal times in the ideal amounts and work only as this input-output machine on, on nutri uh, nutrients. And whilst that sure will improve your health physiologically because it's giving you all these, uh, th the nutrition you need, there's... For any choice you make with your diet, there's also other things that can affect both your physiological and psychological health when it comes to food. So some of the examples I gave is if you eat in such a way where, um, let's say, it's really good quality food and uh, whatever people want to decide is good quality, but for the, this purpose, we'll think of like just good quality food that is the most nutritious. You eat some of that, but if you have a diet that's comprised totally of that, but your mindset is one of fear of eating anything else or anything else will be terrible for me or I should feel guilty or ashamed for wanting something else or um, if I do that then I'm going to look terrible or any of these negative psychological kind of profiles from how you approach what food is. Uh, beyond that, even more simple things that would apply to people of if eating in a certain way is nutritious for you but it means you miss, miss out on um, social occasions. So you can't go to a certain meal out with your friends. You can't go for uh, a barbecue and a beer with, with a couple of your friends or you can't go to your niece or nephew's birthday party and have a piece of cake or you, you can't hang out in these social gatherings because that derails you from this perfect diet you've put yourself on. I think that can be not only problematic psychologically but that those things tie into physiological things and, and stress and sure. long term. And we just know from, uh, like, if you look at any of the literature on, like, comorbidities with things like social isolation um, mm -hmm. and loneliness, it's just incredible. Um, that on top of, obviously, this mental health kind of burden that we have right now, those things shouldn't be underestimated. So any behaviors around food 
that extend beyond their nutritive value should be taken into account as well. Um, and if you just look at any culture in the world, so much of those kind of community aspects are built around eating occasions. Mm. And it's an important time. And if you come together and use food that's tasty and enjoyable in a environment where people are talking and having fun, uh, I think you can lose that if you only see it as this, this collection of molecules, basically. Um, so that was kind of the point I was getting to that there is certain occasions and certain times where having a food that may not be the best for you nutritionally it is actually better for you for your health. Um, and that's not all the time, but it's certainly some of the time. Yeah, I'm glad that that mindset is becoming a little bit more accepted nowadays. Um, I talked with John Meadows about that and I think maybe one or two other guests and I think one of the most unhealthy times I had, psychologically speaking, was in high school when I was eating. I mean, everybody who saw me eating would say I was super healthy, um, but I absolutely missed out on social situations in high school and couldn't go out or I had to be up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym so I can't go out with my friends. Um, and I just because, you know, even 10 years ago, it was much more of like you have to be hardcore if you want the results and you have to do this 100 percent and eat this way. Um, and it's very easy to kind of, you know, lose sight of things and get into that unhealthy state where everything you just become obsessed really. And you miss out on a lot of life. Oh, for sure. And I think this, um, and again, it'd be interesting to see how this, uh, changes amongst individuals and maybe even different sports. But I think one of the good things about team sports is this often can inoculate people from some of those behaviors. Mm. So when you have Let's say uh, a lot of the time if this happens, if someone's just interested in bodybuilding or just generally being fit, but they go this super extreme uh, mindset towards it, uh, or they're in an individual sport where it's me versus everyone else, and if, if I'm not doing it, then my opponent is going to be doing all this mm -hmm. uh, extreme things, um, and then you miss out on all these social occasions and so on. You have to eat the perfect diet. You have to be training all the time. You, you can't do anything wrong. Uh, one thing that a lot of team sports, uh, at least that, that I've seen, uh, that I've been involved with, is after games or after certain training, you have this group of people together that are bonded and they can go out and enjoy a beer or they'll go for some of that and they'll have a night out uh, together, which just culturally seems to be more a thing that you'd see with a, with a football team than you would with maybe an individual athlete and mm -hmm. especially an athlete that's involved in a physique sport. Right. So being able to be aware of that and say, okay, wh where can I have my community and, and where's my support group and where's my group of friends and, and how can I strike a balance between not going so far as to derail any of my athletic goals that they're still worthwhile, but also realize that there are real benefits to be had from now and again being able to um, relax and have this social environment where uh, it, it pulls me away from the rest of the stuff. Right, right. And, and can you think of any other examples? I mean, one that comes to my mind is people who have a hard time gaining weight where maybe a less, what we would think of as typically healthy or nutritious option is the better route. Um, you, know, uh, you know, oils or things like that to get the calories up, even though it might not traditionally be seen as, as healthy. Yeah, sure. And, and that's uh, a pretty common one you see of, of people who are trying to gain weight and doesn't seem to be moving up at all. We know that we, they're simply not in a calorie surplus or at least not of enough of one to be gaining weight at an appreciable rate. And so we need to increase someone's caloric intake. Someone may be reporting that, look, I just can't eat any more food. And when you look at what they're consuming, it's typically, again, 
what you would look at from a nutritional point, great, right? All this really good quality food, but trying to overeat on lots of fibrous vegetables and oats and some fruit and some lean meats can get pretty tricky, right? Like yeah. there's a reason why they are advised when we're trying to diet uh, to try and overeat on them for, especially for some people can be quite tricky. And so you want almost the opposite. It's like, what would you want to eat if you did want to overeat on calories? Things that are easy, quite palatable, not too filling. And that's where choices that are more processed or more in line with what people view as junk food can be useful. Not as a huge part of your diet, but enough of a supplementary part that will push your caloric intake up easily without you feeling full or, or too sick, which can what can happen if someone's trying to eat 600 grams of carbs a day from just oats and bananas, right? right? So yeah, I think there's, there's always scenarios and, and contexts where these universal rules don't apply. And, and that's just one example. Right, right. Um, and so I, I don't think I completely stole this from your podcast. I probably got the idea from it, which was when I finished, I like to kind of go on an actionable step. And I think yours is just asking for a piece of advice, right? That the uh, people give. So, right, yeah. um, so as an actionable step, maybe somebody is, they're hearing this and they realize maybe I have a little bit of disordered eating or I'm a little obsessive with it. Um, what would be your advice for their next step going out from here of how they can kind of improve themselves? Uh, sure. So I think that the first thing that's maybe important to realize in place of this is just how common this is and how pervasive it is. Because I think the reason why maybe people don't try and seek help or don't tell other people about that they're having an issue is because they might think, well, people might think it's weird or this isn't normal that I feel this way about food or about my body image or about exercise. Realize it's super common right now. And I mm -hmm. think it, it's just growing all the time. And we, we a whole other conversation would be why that's the case. But there's a, it's, it's, it's a huge thing. And if you can be aware of that and, and nip it in the bud is you're, you're ahead of most of the people that are going to be struggling with this. So first is being able to talk it through with other people and say it to them. Uh, so whether you work with a coach or a nutritionist or so on, and depending on how uh, severe that is, like if we're talking about a, a full on eating disorder, then 100% let's go and, and get help from uh, a professional in that field. Let's find a clinical psychologist that has expertise in the area and there is help to be had and it can it can be done. If it's more just a thing of where you're noticing some of your behaviors or tendencies are kind of drawing you into being a bit extreme about things, then probably try and ask yourself why that's the case. Why do you believe these certain things? So if you believe, if, if you feel really guilty or shameful after having a certain meal or, or after chocolate or ice cream, or whatever, ask why is that the case? What do you believe you should feel guilty over. And if it's like, well, if I have this, that means I'm going to get fat and I don't want it. It was like, is that really what's going to happen if you have this once? And then kind of reason yourself through it that there's no reason to suspect that, right? Like having any of those foods in and of themselves doesn't cause any of these negative things. Uh, beyond, there's a lot to be said for including discretionary calories or treat foods or whatever you enjoy eating more regularly so that you are less prone to overeat on them. Um, and so I think kind of reasoning through that way, and if you don't have that ability yet because maybe you don't understand enough about nutrition, then cool, there's plenty of people you can reach out to, um, good quality nutritionist, dietitian, even uh, plenty of coaches, personal trainers, 
who are up to speed in this stuff can tell you why you don't need to be guilty or shameful over something you eat. Um, and if it's just something like you are um, pulling yourself away from certain social occasions, that may or may not be okay depending on the, the specific case. So that was the whole idea of that post I mentioned earlier was everything that you make with your nutrition is a trade-off between two things. And so it's not that one choice is always good and one choice is always bad. It's that you need to understand what will making this choice mean, what things are most important to me, and then which way am I going to decide on this particular occasion. So on a lot of occasions, yeah, if you want to do something in great uh, in a particular sport or you have these very specific goals in, in the gym, then every Saturday night you can't say, well, now I need to have some balance. I'm going to go out and get smashed drunk and eat a huge mm -hmm. takeaway. That's not going to be helpful. So most occasions on that trade-off, you would say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice being out with my friends. I'm going to get an early night and I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. But on certain occasions, you would say, you know what, on this particular occasion, um, I, I need a psychological break. I, I want to hang out with my friends. And doing this now is not going to be a big thing. And it's okay to make that choice. And that was the whole kind of thesis of my, my point. There is no one right answer. They can both be viable as long as you yourself are okay with it. So understand what the, the two trade-offs are. Be okay with your decision. And then um, try to realize you never need like 100% perfection from a nutrition or, or exercise standpoint per se. So I don't know if to answer the question, but there are yeah, some no. things that hopefully people can pick something out of. <laughs> No, that's great. And I think what you said about like you being okay with it is the most important thing. Um, I know years ago when I, you know, I never was like binge eating, but I would definitely have kind of, I guess, like cheat days that really got excessive. And I remember feeling guilty about it. And I remember um, bringing it up to my brother who would also go to these buffets with me, but he wasn't in this field at all. He would just kind of come to the buffet with me. And he said something about it. He was like, yeah, I don't have a guilt issue. I just have an eating issue. And like, that was the difference between us was like, he mm. was totally fine with it. And for me, it was like, this bad thing that I was doing that I needed to like get over. And so the mindset about it is, you know, I think where it all starts. Right. For sure. Yeah. Completely agree. So, uh, so you are on, you have the Sigma nutrition podcast. You're on Instagram. Where else can people find your work? So most of it, if they just go to Sigma nutrition.com, they can pretty much find whatever they're looking for. So there you'll find show notes, to the podcast, some articles, um, any of our services, uh, a bit more about me, and then, uh, like you say, if it's social media, uh, Instagram is just Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well with my personal account or Sigma Nutrition. Uh, and yeah, any of those places, I'm happy to take questions or, or connect. And uh, yeah, easy to find. And any podcast app, you can find Sigma Nutrition Radio. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks, everyone, for listening to my interview with Danny Lennon. He's usually on the other side of the podcast, so it's nice to hear his background for a change. If you like the content today, please like the video, subscribe to the channel for more videos, and comment on other topics you'd like to see covered. And also, I thought Danny's choice of charity was really good today, so if you like that cause, please feel free to make your own donation as well.